Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm uh, the associate pastor here. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, It's a delight to be with you as we open God's Word together. So if you do have a copy of the Bible, then open it up to our New Testament reading. Uh, That bracing reading from James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Now this is a loaded passage. So I think it's going to be important that you're able to follow along. You're able to see that the things that I'm saying are not just my ideas. They're things that are actually coming here to us from God's word. Now this passage, James 2, 14 to 26... It's been described by one commentator as the most theologically significant, as well as the most controversial paragraph in the letter of James. Why controversial? Well, let me read to you two sentences, and then tell me if you catch the problem. Here's the first. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There's the first. Now, here's the second. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So where does the conflict seem to be? The first belongs to the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.28. The second comes from the Apostle James here in chapter 2, verse 24. Now here, we seem to have two apostles flagrantly contradicting one another. For one, we're justified by faith. For another, we're justified by works. Now, Occasionally, the reason that this is an important issue that we need to grapple with, occasionally when I'm sitting down with skeptic friends and and the subject of the Bible comes up, then they want to know, how can you regard something as trustworthy or as reliable, which is filled with contradictions? Now, they tend not to actually have any contradictions in mind, but if they did, maybe they would point to, to this one. Is our relationship with God dependent, like Paul says, on faith? Or is it dependent, rather, as James seems to say here, on works? Are we justified by faith or by works? Now, if we don't have a high view of Scripture, if we don't regard Scripture as the living and active Word of God, then we're off the hook. We don't have to do the hard work of wrestling with this question. We don't need to reconcile the apostles. They can just be contradicting one another. And we can take whichever of their views we want, or indeed, another one altogether. But if we do regard Scripture as the Word of God, if we do take a high view of the Bible as God's inspired Word, then we're faced with a serious problem. How would you respond if you're with your friend and and they make that, this objection to you? They point out this apparent contradiction. How, How can you believe, they might say, anything that the Bible has to say on sex, poverty, wealth, marriage, politics, parenting, if the Bible doesn't speak with a coherent voice on an issue as basic as what God wants from us, is he after faith, like Paul says, or is he rather after works, as James teaches? It's a major issue. How are we supposed to be a city on a hill blazing a trail forward for our hopelessly fragmented and broken world if we're not even sure that we're hearing a coherent word from the Lord. It's a major issue. 
So the first thing that I want to say this morning, that I want to underline, is that the Bible does speak with one coherent voice. God never contradicts himself. His word carries one consistent message. His word is utterly reliable. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In other words, God doesn't say anything that he is not thoroughly vetted. He subjects every word, if you like, to firsthand quality control seven times, total fullness. He doesn't slip up. He doesn't say something he doesn't mean. No takesies, backsies. And in fact, as soon as we dig into the particulars of James's argument here, we see that there really is no contradiction between James and Paul after all. The central theme of this passage is a theme that resounds in the letters of Paul and in every other book of the New Testament as well. Here it is. A claim to faith that's not backed up by a life of obedience is worthless. A claim to faith that's not backed up by a life of obedience is worthless. We see this idea emerge clearly at three points, like stakes in the ground in this passage. The first is verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The second place is verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then the third place is verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If we claim to be people of faith, people who follow Jesus, but we aren't living lives of obedience to him, then our claim is worthless. Now, let's get very clear on what James is not saying here. He is not saying that we have to supplement our faith with works in order to be saved. He is not saying that we have to add faith, excuse me, works to faith, in order to produce a combination, to come up with a compound that will please God. James has been exceedingly clear in chapter 1 that it is God alone who secures our salvation through his word. God alone is the one who originates faith in the heart of the Christian. If we had carried on, now James is a man who is steeped in Torah, in the law, in the Hebrew scriptures. If we had read on in Genesis 15, we would have seen this remarkable, terrifying thing unfold. We would have seen Yahweh, Israel's God, cutting covenant with Abraham, cutting covenant, meaning making a covenant with him. The reason that they called it that is because they would take these animals, they'd cut them in half, and then they'd lay out an aisle. And the two of you, the, if, let's say it's two kings, your suzerain king, your high king, your vassal king, your low little weakling, they're going to go, they're going to walk together, arm in arm, through the aisle as a way of saying as a way of the suzerain saying to the vassal, the big guy saying to the little guy, if you break covenant with me, look at what's going to happen to you. Well, what happens in Genesis 15 is that the aisle's made 
if we were to have read on, the aisle gets made. And then Yahweh puts a deep sleep on Abraham, on Abram. And a theophany, meaning a sign of God's presence, passes through the aisle alone. Alone. It is God alone who achieves our salvation, who originates faith in the heart of the Christian. Go, go back. If you're, if, you, if you're open to James here, go flip, flip back and look at chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, the Lord brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is the one who brought us forth by the word of truth. Or look ahead a couple of verses later, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save. Now we would be walking down a very dangerous path if we were to leave this morning understanding James to be saying that our relationship with God depends even partly on faith and partly on works. No, James, James stands utterly with the other apostles. God speaks with one voice. Our salvation is rooted in God's word, which we lay hold of by faith. Now, here is where James comes into the limelight. What kind of faith is it that lays hold of God's word? Now, that's the question that James is interested here uh, in here in chapter 2. For James, the critical point is that saving faith will always be characterized by lives of obedience in other words, you know that you're looking at a person with saving faith when you see transformed people living transformed lives. So let's remind ourselves where we are in James's uh, unfolding argument here. I think this will help us. Last week, when Aubrey was preaching to us, we heard James call the church to love of the poor. And he ended that exhortation with this startling reminder that on the day of judgment, God is going to hold Christians accountable. He's going to hold us accountable for how we treat the poor. Now, in these verses, starting off in verse 14, James is encountering a hypothetical objection to what he's just said. The objection that he's anticipating goes like this. What do you mean judgment? I thought the whole point of being saved by faith is that we don't have to worry about judgment anymore. Well, in fact, James says, yes, we're saved by faith. But what kind of faith will it be that secures our safety in the day of judgment? Perhaps James knew of Christians who had radically inadequate understandings of faith, of what it is to believe. Perhaps he knew of Christians who had considered themselves faithful disciples merely because they'd learned the intellectual content, the, the head knowledge of the Christian faith. To them, James answers, verse 19, you believe that God is one, right? You know your Torah, hear, O Israel. You know Scripture, you know your doctrine, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even the demons believe in God. Even the demons can say the Apostles' Creed, 
without their fingers crossed behind their back. Even the demons are Trinitarians. But mere intellectual belief and understanding, if you like, from the facts, from a third person standpoint, is not the kind of faith that will secure our safety in the day of judgment. Perhaps James knew of other Christians who zealously acknowledged these intellectual points. If the, and, and, and I'll be very transparent. This is very much where I found myself and where I found myself most condemned in my, or convicted in my, uh, in my preparation. If the first kind of believers filled uh, the margins of his Bible up with checkpoints, like, yep, he got it right. <laughs> God's right there. Yep, he's right there too. Then the second kind of person is enthusiastically in support of these things. So instead of check marks, we fill our margins up with preach it. We've got this deep enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastic approval, but it's still not enough unless out of it flows active obedience. James is saying, no, it's not just head content. It's not just enthusiastic approval. It goes much deeper, more than head knowledge, more than pious zeal. Saving faith is a confident trust that the promises of God apply to me. And what that means is that God has put his infinite resources at my disposal to live and to love sacrificially in his world. In other words, faith touches on God as our creator, our provider, our redeemer, and our judge. To the extent that we grasp the promises of God as our creator, provider, redeemer, and judge, we will have transformed lives. Because, or insofar as I trust God as my creator, the one who owns me and created me for fellowship with his son, 1 Corinthians 1.9, because of that, I can afford to put the name of Jesus first, even when it risks compromising a cherished relationship. I will sit across the table and when the moment comes, when I know this is a sovereign appointment, the Lord has put me here, he wants me to speak the name of Jesus and suddenly I realize I'm, I'm at the pain line. I don't want to say it. It's this. I trust he's my creator that puts me over the line and I say the name of Jesus to the person even when I know it puts the relationship at risk. Because I trust God as my provider, the one who gives me all that I need, I can afford to be radically generous, operating out of an abundance and not a scarcity mentality. Because I know God is my redeemer, the, the one who doesn't require my efforts to achieve my salvation, then I'm able to seek true justice and not just to be a social justice warrior. I can be more than an angry evangelist for a secular cause. I can be an ambassador of the kingdom. And because I know God is my judge, I can refrain from retaliating while at the same time trusting that God will set all to rights and nothing, no thought, no deed, no intention escapes his notice. True faith is observable. You will know a true faith when you see transformed people living transformed lives. And I mean, look at, look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's, here's a person who comes, who clothes, who heals, who takes someone else under his wing at his own 
expense. Jesus is giving us a picture of a life that can only flow from faith. Because we know a God who has clothed us in Christ's righteousness, we are able to clothe others. Because he has healed us, because he's bound up our wounds and borne our sorrows, we're able to offer healing. And most importantly, because he has cared for us at his infinite expense, we can be merciful to others and ours. We can embrace a costly discipleship. In all of this, James is making faith the resounding conclusion to his presentation of true religion, which began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 21. We saw there, we've already read it earlier in the sermon, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. From there, James has been presenting this picture, this portrait of true religion, and now it's coming up to this culmination. Over the previous chapter and a half, James has been describing the Christian life in terms virtually identical to those which Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew. For example, the poorly clothed person that we meet in verse 15, it's the same word for the naked person with whom Jesus identifies in Matthew 25. We've we've rehearsed the commandments. We've spoken about the sins of the tongue. We've read of the mercy that we're bound to show to orphans and widows and the poor. And James reiterates those commands in verses 15 and 16. However, this is important for us right now. Wherever we are on the political or social spectrum, Christ doesn't call us to be activists for a social or a political interest group. He calls us to be disciples, and that means, James says, that our obedience must be rooted in faith, a living faith, a faith that works. Notice verse 22. You see that faith, he's talking about uh, Genesis 17, Abraham going up to sacrifice Isaac. You see that faith was active along with Abraham's works and was completed by his works. Faith isn't a stationary thing to which we then come up and add works. No, James says faith is active along with works. It's not simply faith isn't a matter of mental reorientation. I accumulate these new facts and now I'm a Christian. Faith pulses with life. It throbs and thrums and wriggles. And in fact, we're, we're invited to that image of a pulsing, thrumming, wriggling thing, a, a wriggling faith in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Fulfilled. James is quoting Genesis fifteen six here, that Old Testament uh, reading from this morning. And he's identifying as the root cause of Abraham's later obedience In Genesis 17, he's identifying that root cause as faith. And the word that James uses to describe the fulfillment of Scripture, it's the same word. This is wonderful. It's the same word used to describe the disciples' overflowing fishing nets when they met Jesus in the Gospels. What James is saying here in verses 22 and 23 is that Abraham's faith was brought to 
fullness. It was brought to wriggling life, if you know your golem. It was brought to wriggling life by the obedience that flows from faith. Jesus doesn't call us to an empty net Christianity. He calls us to take up full and wriggling nets and to offer him our lives. Now, aren't we still left, as we move along in the passage here, aren't we still left with a contradiction, a problem? Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, what can James possibly mean by this, if not that a person standing with God depends on her works, which is precisely the point that Paul is out to overturn, right? Well, look again at verse 24. Let's just take a close look. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I want to point out just a couple of things to turn the diamond of this verse a little bit and help us see a different facet than maybe what we see immediately. The first thing that I want to point out is the word alone. Monon. Like in Monopoly, it's on its own. This is a picture of a bare, lifeless, speculative, or intellectual ascent. This is not what Paul means when he speaks of faith. This is not the faith of someone who has been healed and clothed and embraced by God. Understood in this way as head knowledge that never works itself out in the world, this verse is perfectly consistent with Paul and everything else in the New Testament. Paul speaks, Romans 1.5, about calling the church to the obedience of faith. And in Galatians 5, 6, Paul speaks of faith working through love. James says here, faith without love is like an empty fishing net. Where's the life? What good is it? Now that's a question, by the way, which is a legitimate question to ask of our faith. What difference does it make? And when our neighbors or our skeptical friends or our skeptical family members ask That question of us, what difference does it make? How does it actually shape your life? How are you actually different than me? That's a legitimate question. James says it twice in the start of the passage. What good is it? What difference does it make? Am I like an empty fishing net? I began to feel very much like that as I read this passage and as I prepared for this sermon. I'm still not quite secure as I'm preaching it. This is tough. The second thing that I want to point out is that James is using the term justified in a different way than Paul. For Paul, justification refers, and this is the way that we tend to use it when we talk in terms of Christian theology. It refers to to God's initial declaration of a sinner to be in right standing with him. It's from Paul that we get this particular understanding of the word, but James is writing this most likely in the mid-40s. Paul hasn't had time to work this stuff out in his his letters. 
James hasn't read Paul's writings, and he probably only knows Paul's teaching secondhand. And the use of the word that we see here is much closer to the use of the word that we see Jesus using in the gospel, uh, or, or Matthew using, rather, in the gospel to describe the person who wants to justify himself. In other words, to acquit himself. It's much closer to that. James doesn't mean the same thing as Paul. He's describing the ultimate verdict of innocence that's going to be pronounced over a person at the last judgment. Not the initial declaration, I'm right with God, but the ultimate verdict of innocence pronounced over a person at the last judgment. That's how James is using the word. Now, when you take those two things together, faith alone in this monopoly sense and this distinct meaning of the term justification. Once you put those things together, you'll see that there's absolutely no contradiction between James and Paul and that the Bible does speak with one voice. It speaks about the fundamental reality of a living faith. And what we see here in James, the gift to us, is that James explores it from a different angle than the other apostles. Paul, for example, is attacking the error of legalism. This this idea that my standing with God depends on what I do. If only I accrue enough points, if only I work hard enough, if only I do enough impressive things, then I'll be in right standing with God. James, on the other hand, is attacking the opposite error of license, which says that my standing with God relieves me of any obligation to live in such a way as pleases him. Biblical Christianity holds both together, not by compromising the two or by fudging the two, but by insisting that God grants the believer a living faith so that she may serve him in the world. Now, where does this leave us? Well, let me just point out to you the significance of the two examples that James raises up at the end of this passage. Abraham and Rahab, the patriarch and the prostitute. Both Abraham and Rahab provide examples of people who have responded to God in faith. And in this instance, this is the capstone of James's description of true religion. It is extremely significant that both Abraham and Rahab provide examples of faith working out through hospitality. That's the same issue that James has been confronting in the passage that Aubrey preached on last week. It's the same issue that he is confronting here in verses 15 and 16. If you see a brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now James then is showing us that care for the poor is a fundamental Christian obligation. But more than that, he's pointing to the people that you're sitting beside. Did you notice? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, in other words, in what they need even to make it through the day, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needful for the body, what good is that? So this is faith working out through hospitality, but in particular, faith working out through hospitality 
in the church. Now, COVID has vastly reshaped our ability to practice hospitality, hasn't it? You can just imagine how we, we might tell or retell the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The, the priest walks by, he scoots around. The Levite walks by, he scoots around. And then the Good Samaritan comes. But he had forgotten his mask, so he didn't want to help. It's really hard to figure out how to do hospitality well. We, maybe you've got people that you've banded with. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's a couple of close friends. I just want to urge you not to be content with entertaining as the only expression of hospitality in your life. We've got to be finding ways to respond faithfully to the people that God sends us. That practice is open to the patriarch and to the prostitute. And what I want you to see is that this is not, the practice of hospitality is not something that we come in and we add like Christmas lights onto the bare tree of faith. That's not the case. That kind of obedience flows out of the wellspring of faith. If you like, it's the thing that grows up out of the soil where God has put the implanted word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus. Who calls us to love him as we love others. We thank you for giving us the gift of faith. And we thank you that Lord, the glorious fact that you accomplish our salvation by yourself, just like you did for Abraham, it does not mean that we should sit back. It means that we should do exactly what you called the patriarch and the prostitute to do. We should love our enemies. We thank you for giving us your spirit so that we may. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen.